Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 54, Getting a State Medical Society to Support Medicare for All. My guest, Jane Catsfield, MD, is a retired pediatrician. She has been a clinical instructor in pediatrics at the University of Vermont School of Medicine and a clinical instructor or professor at other medical schools. In addition, Dr. Catsfield has worked for the New Jersey State Health Department. Dr. Jane Catsfield, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation, Joe. You got the Vermont Medical Society to pass a resolution to support Medicare for All. Why did you want the Vermont Medical Society to do that? Well, um, the idea started uh, back when I went to a national uh, PNHP, Physicians for National Health Program meeting uh, a few years ago, where I heard someone talk about a goal of getting every organization, town, group, to support a resolution in support of improved and expanded Medicare for all. And soon after that, I saw a sample medical society resolution on the PNHP website. And it struck me that a statement in support of single payer by a state medical society, representative of organized medicine, could have a powerful effect on legitimizing and popularizing the concept of single payer. A powerful effect, especially with the past history of the American Medical Association, the AMA, which has long been considered one of single payers' most powerful opponents. In the 1940s and 1950s, when Truman tried to get a single payer universal national health improvement uh, insurance program passed, the AMA underwent the most expensive propaganda campaign of the time, calling the plan un-American, socialism, actually saying it would make doctors slaves. It was a similar playbook to the one insurance companies are using now, calling Medicare for all socialism, falsely saying people would lose their choice of their doctor. I was also inspired by the recent movement in several national physician organizations, like in 2019, I believe, AMSA, the Student Medical Association, passed uh, support for single payer. Then the AMA resigned from the Partnership for American Healthcare Futures, whose sole purpose is to defeat Medicare for All. And then last year, the American College of Physicians endorsed Medicare for All, as well as a universal public choice. And right after that, the Society for General Internal Medicine endorsed a similar resolution. And I also had a sense that the physicians I knew that I worked with and I knew through um, some statewide uh, medical activity were open to the idea of single payer, although I'm sure they had questions on, on various elements. 
and polls show that over half of physicians support the idea of single payer. Based on the experience of the 1950s, and even with the passage of Medicare in 1965, it was clear to me that we, and others, I'm sure, that we need physicians to be part of healthcare reform to make it work. We physicians witnessed the harm inflicted on our patients by this profit-driven system, be it the um, health effects from racial inequities, climate change, the adversities of some social and uh, economic environments. So we're really in a good position to advocate, and we owe it to our patients, not just to advocate for their medical needs at the bedside, but to reform a system that we know leaves many families in bankruptcy and forces them to forego care because they can't afford it. I also thought physicians are considered trustworthy and are respected, at least the individual physician that, that people have. Um, and I deeply believe that a physician organization making a statement in support of single payer would be a giant step to combat all the misinformation out there, to clarify these muddy issues in healthcare reform that have been obfuscated, really. Um, Misinformation like the insurance company message that um, the reason why healthcare is so costly is because people are overutilizing the system rather than uh, the truth that the administrative waste that they incur is really driving costs up. So pretty much that was my thought going into it. And when did you propose the resolution and when did it pass? Well, that was a complicated story because <laughs> it happened on a couple of fronts. So um, I'll go through the chronology to make it understandable. I started the process in November 2018 when I attended the annual Vermont Medical Society VMS meeting uh, to get a feel for who was there and how the resolution process worked. It was actually my first VMS meeting. I hadn't been a member before. It was uh, expensive to join, and it hadn't seemed relevant to my work life. But I did join at that point. I wrote up a resolution and submitted it first in the spring of 2019. It turns out it was a wonderful time to do it because a new policy had just been instated that uh, it was started that year, that resolutions that were going to be voted on were circulated before the council meeting, which is a subgroup of the, of the medical society. They were circulated in the summer to all Vermont Medical Society members to get their input, their opinions on the resolutions. And when the, the poll results came back, actually the membership favored my resolution two and a half to one in favor of the resolution. So I was allowed a three-minute presentation to the VMS Council in September of 19, and I was surprised and very elated to learn that they put their stamp of approval on it, which meant it was going to go to the membership with their support. 
But at the annual meeting, we're now at November 2019, I learned the executive committee had submitted an amendment basically restating the need for universal access. And it appeared to many there that they were trying to distract from my resolution. And through procedural gaming using Robert's Rules of Order, um, a group with some backing from the leadership effectively shut down discussion and vote on my resolution, and it was tabled. And it all happened so fast, and uh, I was a novice at this, and I was totally taken aback. And basically, my resolution had been hijacked. To cover up this maneuver, the staff set up, because I think they realized that it was obvious that they had hijacked it to the membership, the staff set up a task force to discuss national and state-based reform and put me on it. Um, Most of the members, aside from me, believed in incremental change for healthcare reform, and no one, aside from me, did their homework. So after two months, it was disbanded and didn't really come up with any kind of consensus. Last June 2020, uh, I once again submitted the resolution with updated statistics um, on health care um, and with a list of principles. The staff of VMS very much wanted principles to be involved in the resolution, and I, I submitted to that. Um, and these were aspects of a single-payer plan that would be required for our support. I also changed the title to Support for a Single-Payer National Health Program rather than Medicare for All, because the little discussion that had happened at the meeting, uh, from that discussion, it seemed like the Medicare for All brought up members' resentment with Medicare compensation and was an unnecessary distraction from the concept, and it was fine to just use single-payer national health programs. I found out at the last minute that a couple of others on the task force were submitting a resolution basically supportive of incremental reform. Again, before the September council meeting, members were asked to weigh in on the two resolutions, and again, there was over two to one supportive of my resolution. Last November, we had a virtual annual meeting. So we're at November 2020 now. Um, And I think that was extremely helpful. More and different people were able to participate. I called everyone I knew to at least be present for the discussion and vote on the resolutions rather than having to travel two and a half hours north to Burlington, uh, where meetings usually are in that area. I had two minutes to present, and most of my comments were focused on how insurance companies and big farmer messaging stoked the fear that single-payer can't be done. Surprisingly, there were few opposing comments. One interesting thing happened, one of the final comments Uh, by someone who was opposed. It was actually the last comment before the voting uh, started. Uh, The comment was that there were long waiting periods in Canada for procedures. We always hear that as a reason not to have it. But another member at the meeting was able to respond with what had been reported just that day on national public radio. Uh, Wendell Potter, who's a whistleblower, 
on uh, the insurance industry, described how his role when he worked in the uh, industry, the insurance industry, was to create disinformation about the Canadian health system just to instill fear, uncertainty, and doubt about Medicare for all. So it was about a year and a half process, um, but when the vote came, it was overwhelmingly in support, 78% in favor, which was joyful to hear. One of the things that struck me when you're talking about this was that you said in the first vote it passed by two and a half times, and yet a small group of people were able to table it and put it on hold. And I think there's a lesson there, which I want to come back to. But for right now, okay, even though it overwhelmingly passed, you mentioned some people complained about the reimbursement rates, but were there any uh, real objections or fears to passing the single-payer resolution, or was it all a recital of insurance industry propaganda? Well, it was kind of a blend of that. Um, I think uh, one of the, I would call it a fear, um, was that it would ruin private practice um, and that government restrictions cripple private practice. And the ironic thing about this is that in our state, in Vermont, a main health organization, which is an accountable care organization, has made it difficult right now for small practices and community hospitals to exist. Doctors need huge IT investment to meet the quality measures and parameters that the ACO demands. And many have gone out of business and there's been protests. Um, and then the other thing is that when you look at Canada, the vast majority of primary care offices are privately owned and managed by physicians in small groups or solo practice. So, um, you know, that was a fear that was really based on nothing that had been shown. Another one, and, and really the big one, uh, I think, um, was that single payer is unrealistic, unattainable. It would cause too much upheaval in our country. It would be too difficult politically. And those are people who feel that we need intermediary steps like public option. Um, one person I remember said, we need something doable, not aspirational. And, um, what I tried to say to that was, yes, I truly believe that the barrier at this point is political. I don't think it's economic. Many studies have shown that there aren't economic barriers to this. It's a political barrier. Um, I, I think at this point, because of all that messaging, it's hard for Americans to even envision what a universal coverage would look like uh, because of the powerful, well-funded anti-single-payer messaging from insurance and pharmaceutical companies. They're some of the richest, most powerful industries. They've made profit in the past year during COVID, um, enormous profits. 
But I really feel the message from us needs to be that we need to imagine and reconsider, especially after COVID or with COVID now, and remember that significant political change has succeeded despite the perception beforehand that it was impossible. And we saw that with the Black Lives Matter movement this past year. It really lit the fire. It's been uh, garnered tremendous support multinationally and around the world. And here in Vermont, we had a similar struggle with marriage equality. Who would have thought just before it passed that it was going to pass? I have this quote from Bernie Sanders, who's our senator, right here at my desk that uh, inspires me. It says, the greatest obstacle to real social change has everything to do with the power of the corporate and political establishment to limit our vision as to what is possible and what we're entitled to as human beings. And it's important for us to convey that we are entitled to this and we need to envision it. Um, there were other objections. I could go into them if you'd like, but um, one I already referred to that Medicare pays poorly and has hoops that doctors have to jump through, like quality measures. Um, and another one that um, is probably a little uh, unique to Vermont, some people said, if we can't do it in Vermont, we can't do it nationally. But I felt there were good answers to those, um, which I did put forward. Well, one of the things, I've actually interviewed a doctor who has practiced in both Canada and the U.S., Dr. Anna Stratus. And after working mm -hmm. in the U.S., she went back to Canada for a bit. And let me tell you, she found it much easier to practice in Canada because what rules they had were actually to help patients, and she didn't have to fight the insurance companies. And I don't think people realize how much time doctors spend trying to get necessary care for their patients because some clerk without medical training says you can't do it. Absolutely. It's expensive and takes time. And one of the things that would free up doctors' time so they could actually spend more time with patients or get more patients in within the same amount of time. Absolutely. I think a lot of doctors are fed up with that. Yeah, so I'm a little bit surprised that they're worried about the government funding in a single-payer system because from what I've seen, the evidence shows that it would make life much easier. Um, yeah. One of the things, and I mentioned this, how a small group who has influence can stop things, and you mentioned that too. Do you think that's the primary lesson from your experience and one of the major things we need to be aware of in getting this passed? Do I think, um, I'm sorry, could you say that again? Do I think that um, we have to be aware of groups that can kind of undermine the, the effort? Yes, that's the question. Do we have to be aware of groups that can undermine the effort? Absolutely. And I think it's important to have allies when you go into 
this um, this uh, struggle just to help strategize. And um, I had a few um, that helped uh, support when I brought up a point, others would affirm that and expand on it and uh, and be ready for what kind of actions people are going to take. I wasn't ready the first go-round, but I was the second. So one of the lessons is be prepared for what are likely arguments against single-payer. Yeah, I was prepared for arguments. I wasn't prepared for this uh, this procedural gaming of um, using Robert's rules, um, you know, about amendments when one can discuss an amendment, what voted on first, the resolution or the amendment, things like that. But I did study that and got that down. One of the things I wanted to mention is when you were talking about Bernie Sanders' quote, and I think that was a great quote, by the way, but I heard a political proverb, which is, in politics, it is impossible until it happens. And I think right. that's something to keep in mind as we fight this battle. Yeah, I think Mandela said that. That was another quote that was inspirational <laughs> for me. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Yeah, um, well, a few things. I think that um, a lot of doctors... Um, just my experience with some of uh, what doctors were feeling, I think there's general support for universal coverage and concern about lack of primary care, mental health services, and uh, the fate of rural hospitals, um, and a desire for a public health system. And I think that we have to see that as a positive aspect of general physicians, at least it was in, in Vermont and a feeling that single-payer might change that. And at the same time, I think there's huge frustrations with meddling by insurance companies, the micromanagement with prior off and things like that, and the plethora of formularies that um, aren't even disclosed to the physician, um, the administrative burdens of physicians spending more time dealing with their electronic health record, um, then patient care, the complex billing, all those, the outrageous drug prices. So I think single payer can, the idea can appeal to physicians as a way to address, address those frustrations uh, for physicians to regain autonomy over patient care, um, less clicking, less paperwork, um, so they don't feel, I think there's a demoralization out there based on those things. And then the other thing, um, I guess, in terms of lessons, I think that um, it's important to reach out to the membership of the medical societies. I think the general membership, not necessarily the ones who come to meetings or speak up, but it seemed to me that they were more supportive than some of the officers and the um, outspoken members. So I did... um, Call people I knew. Um, I think that's a good thing to call people, get them to be members, and to show up when this is discussed, if people are considering taking this up with their state medical society. And 
a lesson that I learned um, that I should have foreseen. I wasn't prepared for the lack of publicity. The Medical Society press release came out two weeks after the meeting. I asked them every day when it was coming out, but it came out two weeks after, and that coincided with Thanksgiving and a COVID surge in our state, and the release was bland. It was buried in all the other business that happened uh, at the meeting, and it was unexciting, and it really didn't get good press coverage in our state, which was a very important part of why I wanted the resolution passed. The National Office of PNHP did a great job, and uh, after they put something out, I actually got several calls from people in different states wanting to know how I did it and looking for advice. And I think I got more passionate about this issue, that this is the time, really, for us to provide research and educational materials to combat all the misinformation out there. Profits have no place in our healthcare. Health is not a marketable product. And I think it's good to compare it to things like education and fire protection, that it's a public good. Sometimes people use that expression, but I, I think the idea is that our democracy and our economy are really strengthened if everyone is healthy and educated. Therefore, our society has a responsibility to provide it as a public good. Um, I also think it's the time to form coalitions. Um, and the fight for single payer is actually more than uh, a fight uh, to cover the 9 or 10% of people uninsured, although that is important. But it's also part of a larger movement. Um, and I think that's happening more and more, tying it in with racial justice and environmental justice, economic justice, um, because each movement impacts on the other and creates um, a larger impact. And really, I, I, I would totally encourage physicians to bring up resolutions in their state medical societies. Imagine if 10 or 20 medical societies came out in support of this. It would be a game changer. It would be heard by our patients, the public, who could then put pressure on federal legislators. I think it's very important work that people should carry on. Well, I think it's interesting what you're saying is build grassroots support among doctors. And you're also saying, and I think it's a very important point, that single payer is tied to other things that need to be done. and. As a general rule, although I focus mostly on single payer and Medicare for all, I certainly would love to see a more holistic approach. Right. Jane, thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you, and thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about the Medical Society Resolution. You're welcome. Thank you again for being on Medicare for All. Explained. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.